minimalists. <laughs> this is The Minimalists. I'm Joshua. I'm here with Ryan yeah, and thanks. Dr. Nicole LaPera. We're talking about her book, How to Do the Work. I'll hold it up if you're watching the video version of this. So I thought we'd do this little segment, Nicole, called More About Less, where we, we read something as sort of a jump-off point for discussion. And so I figured, why not read some excerpts from your book? And that will give us an opportunity not to just dive into the book, but to preemptively answer some questions here. So I wanted to start on page 65 and talk about trauma body, which uh, the beginning of the chapter starts like this. The breaking point for me, at least physically, came the day I fainted passed out cold let's talk about that that uh, you talk about the the years of whack-a-mole let's go into that so as long as i can remember along with my anxiety i had a lot of physical issues um specifically around digestion i was really really not to be too graphic constipated Mm. Um, my sleep was terrible Um, i would lay up at night not only just worrying just unable to sleep always really feeling tired Um, I discovered somewhere, probably in my late teens, early 20s, when I started to share stories or lack there of stories with friends, I began to discover that I had some memory issues too. Mm. I had a really hard time remembering my past entirely. Mm. Um, At that point in time, remembering events with my friends. Last week, where do we go? What do we do? Um, And it wasn't just because I was partying. I really was struggling with memory. Mm. So flash forward in time, um, I was in my 30s at this point. And so for all of those symptoms, I should mention, I very much, like I was illustrated in my family, modeled, we very much had a Band-Aid approach. We were aware of the holistic modality. I tried herbs to sleep for my digestion, tried all the things, and if they didn't work quick enough, I'd onto another Mm -hmm. um, Band-Aid, if you will. So that was the whack-a-mole. I saw all these symptoms, saw very similar patterns in my family, and we all just kind of attempted to treat them one by one. Mm -hmm. And again, flash forward a lot of time. Um, I had my practice at this time, and out of nowhere, I started to faint. Um, And by that point, I was really worried because coupled with the memory issues, I had localized the issue probably bring in my brain Mm -hmm. and probably being something serious. Um, Because I had no other explanation for why one, an individual, myself, would start fainting out of of nowhere. Um, And for me, from, you know, coming from a lot of, a lot of my anxiety was around health-related issues. So now my anxiety is at a high because I'm convinced something is wrong in my brain. And actually there was a godsend in there because that's what drove me first online um, and began to look at body stuff, began to understand, you know, probably first Googling why would someone faint? Um, and really went down a rabbit hole where I began to understand that the reason I was fainting was connected with my nervous system, mm. um, was connected to being in, in stressful environments without the resources to cope. Mm. Um, and essentially what fainting is, is an extreme version of, of shutdown. Um, so I'd gotten to the point in my life, all of my symptoms actually I came to realize were really connected to stress, mm. really, and to the overactive nervous system mm-hmm. um, state that my body was living in. So fainting was scary, um, convinced me something was physically wrong, mm. though led me to ex- explore um, the physical body and its role really in our ultimately in our wellness yeah mm. so so let's talk about about trauma it manifests in a bunch of different ways and when you talk about you know, trauma body what, what, what are we talking about here so trauma lives in our bodies it affects us down to the cellular level mm. um, it affects us in our ability to tolerate stress or our inability to tolerate stress Um, It affects us in different hormone levels, fluctuating, cortisol for a lot of us being consistently too high and or too low. Mm. Um, It really does weave itself into all of our systems. We are created evolutionarily to deal with stress, though the hope is that we're able to then deal with the stress and fall back into our our kind of baseline, Mm -hmm. um, a different nervous system entirely, our parasympathetic. Mm -hmm. And when we don't, when we don't, become activated, our sympathetic response, probably listeners have heard about that, fight, flight, or freeze. Yes. Um, when we don't come back to baseline, a lot of physiological dysregulation can happen and it can weave its way into, like I said, higher hormone levels um, and certain systems, digestion, sleep in, in particular, beginning to actually shut down. Yeah, and, and we're, none, none of us are immune to it. We tend to think of this binary, that's a traumatized person, that is a non-traumatized person. That's not the case. Yeah, so I, I actually advocate and I speak about 
kind of shifting the definition of trauma a bit um, and really honoring the effect that trauma has, less so applying it to the event, where for a very long time we did feel like there was a certain threshold for events to be considered traumatic. Mm. Now we understand that it's less about the event and more about the human and the spectrum, Mm. to speak to your point, Joshua, that we all live on with different physiologies, different resources, different supportive or lack thereof support in our environments to help us deal with our stress. So it isn't the event per se, it's how do we perceive the event and how capable or incapable are we able to navigate it. And when we aren't, when we don't have that safe base, we oftentimes don't go back into that safe space of our nervous system. And again, we stay activated. Some of us, for me, for years, decades. I mean, it was until my 30s where I became, where the symptoms got acute to the point where I started fainting at that point. So in a way we become more traumatized by our trauma yes. because of the symptoms that it yes. creates. And then as you say, the, the whack-a-mole, we, we, well, it goes back to the, the Kapil Gupta thing, smitten by prescription. E- even someone like Nicole is like, well, what is the, what's the Band-Aid? Mm. What's the thing that can alleviate the symptom? Because I'm not even considering dealing with the actual problem, right? What is, what is the cause of all of this? Right. And then it actually does, you beautifully are describing it, I call it an onion. We mm. adapt. That's the thing. We're so adaptive. So as our systems fall out of regulation in early time, we adapt and we adapt. And then we, we literally form the skin of an onion where, to speak to your point, one, you know, one moment in time can really catalyze um, all of these layers of adaptation mm. that then result in right me being in my 30s, having all of this cascade of symptoms, mm-hmm. again, that began from my lack of ability to deal with stress at an yeah. early age. Yeah. We got another excerpt here, Meet the Ego. This is page 142 from How to Do the Work. It's only now, looking back, that I know that those dishes in the sink communicated a narrative. My partner doesn't consider me. I had this yesterday. Mm. This is fascinating. Not the dishes thing, but something very similar. I was here working, and I I was talking to Bax and Ella, uh, our daughter, in the morning. I said, hey, I'm going to try to come home for lunch uh, at noon. And let's have lunch together. And they were like, okay, great. And I get home at noon and there's no lunch. And they had already eaten. (laughs) 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 And I'm like, what's going on? Oh, I thought you were coming home to have lunch. And I'm like, why would I do that? (laughs) (laughs) And then my first, of course, I invent a narrative in my head, right? And it's, uh, my partner doesn't consider me. They don't understand. Yeah. When You know what the truth was? I probably didn't do a good enough job communicating it in the morning. And if I'm able to step back and say, oh, I, I, I could have communicated this differently. Hey, would you be willing to make lunch for us? All I had to do was ask that and it would have changed everything. Oh, of course. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Mm. And, and because I'm going to be home for this short period of time and I had to come back into the office and not a problem. I didn't do a good job communicating, but because I didn't do a good enough, good enough job communicating, I'm infallible in my mind, and, and of course, it must be someone else's <laughs> fault then. Uh, return the text. Remember, this is one of my core beliefs about myself. I'm not considered. Uh, that came from my childhood. This, mm. my friends, is an ego story. Let's mm. talk about the ego. Yes, this actually goes back to the question we were asked in a certain way about... Um, clutter in the home, right? When my suggestion was some version of pulling back and exploring whether or not it's a personal meaning that we're assigning or whether or not there's another explanation. Like you beautifully shared, Joshua, in this moment, it maybe wasn't that your partner or your child didn't care to provide you lunch. It was Mm -hmm. they were confused at what the plan was, Mm, right? right. An alternate story that would have led to a much different emotional reaction. However, we're coloring, we're filtering the world that we're experiencing all day long. And oftentimes what we're filtering it through is a lens based on our past experiences. Mm -hmm. And from very early in time, most of us have been creating a story about who we think we are based on how we've experienced ourselves, how Mm -hmm. we've shown up in the world, how we relate to others. And we create these stories. However, a lot Mm -hmm. of us haven't updated it. We're still operating with those past lenses. So my story was very real at a time where I had a family that did have high anxiety, that did have one crisis after the other in Mm. a lot of ways, did leave the attention away from me, Mm. um, did result in in those moments because my child brain couldn't pull back 
couldn't take perspective, couldn't understand that mom and dad or my sister or whomever weren't able to tend to me because something else very real for them was happening. All I could understand in that moment is they were unavailable to Mm. me. So some version of that I'm not considered narrative began to take hold, right? Whether or not that was true at the time, it wasn't. However, developmentally, when we're younger, we can't have the beautiful perspective that we can have as adults. However, we often don't modify into that perspective. So what I noticed as I dropped in and began to witness my internal world, because us as humans are incredibly habitual in even the thoughts that we think. Mm. We do tell ourselves the same repetitive stories about ourselves, our ego stories. And they're unintentionally habitual. It's not the, the same habit of, I wake up every morning and go to the gym at 7 a.m. That's a particular habit that we often consider healthy, whatever. I don't know that it is or isn't. But but with the, the habits you're talking about, is they're unconscious. Unconscious, right? Mm. And I would, so to use a dish as an example, I might come home and as I did, week after week to see, as I shared earlier, our different living environment preferences. And I just would feel agitated. Mm -hmm. And so my next step was, okay, Nicole, you're feeling agitated. What is it about, so the dishes, what is it about the dishes in this moment that's upsetting you? Mm -hmm. And I had to drop in and actually see from my mind's eye what it was about the dishes. Because Mm -hmm. objectively, dishes on a sink are just dishes on a sink. Right. When I say we're reacting to the meaning, yes. it's what did my mind tell me right. about those dishes on the sink that caused the emotion then. So this is the work of dropping in so I can view my you know, mind's eye and realize that what I told myself upon seeing the dishes, again, outside of my awareness entirely, was the dishes meant I wasn't considered. So now Mm. I had something to work with. And Mm. again, exploring my past, understanding deep enough where this went back to, I now understood it brought me right back into that moment in time. Mm. Um, However, again, cultivating that expansion where I can view my ego stories, because the next question is, how do I work with Mm. my ego? Do I kill it? How do I make those reactions go away? Mm. Because for a lot of us, that is the place that we're reacting. When we're yelling, when we're screaming, when we're icing people out, it's typically because our sense of self was challenged. The Mm. story that we once created was challenged. We need the the ego. At one point, it was the only way that we felt safe enough, that we felt protected enough to continue on. Mm. However, now, like I said, we can expand a bit. We can create some new stories. So our goal isn't to kill these reactions. We can't. I mean, I know for me, they're still there. And there's still some moments where my resources are low. Say, for instance, book launch week, Uh where my not considered story is at the ready. At any turn, I'm, I'm waiting to be not considered Right, so when our resources are low, our ego is going to be there. Again, it believes it's in service of us, it thinks it's protecting us, so we can even thank it. And again, relax into it and create space for a new opportunity to create a new story where it doesn't for me, all roads don't have to lead back to being not considered. Yeah, Yeah. it reminds me of like an overly solicitous host who is wanting to take care of you. you I don't know if you've ever had someone in your life, a partner or uh, a parent, where they they go out of their way to take care of you, and it's really nice. Or m- maybe you go stay at a, a a nice hotel, and they're they're overly pampering, and it's really great for a day or a week or whatever. But at some point, you, you're like, okay, I don't I don't need you to, you know. Uh, give me a brand new towel every single time I get out of the shower, whatever it is, right? I don't need you to clean up my room for me every single, and, and all of a sudden you start to feel like, oh, this is, this is too much. And I, the ego is, is that to a certain extent where it's like, oh, uh, this thing is, has taken control and it's on autopilot now. And I didn't even realize it for the last four decades. <laughs> and, and, and yet here I am. Uh, but with this overly solicitous ego that feels like it's helping, but when it crosses a threshold, it's actually doing the opposite. Yeah. Got another excerpt here. The 90-second rule. This is on page 228. Emotional maturity allows us to accept all of our emotions, even the uglier ones we don't want to admit we harbor. The fundamental aspect of emotional maturity is the ability to be aware of and regulate our emotions in order to allow others to express themselves, or simply the ability to tolerate all of our emotions without losing control, which is at the core of all the work we are doing. Believe it or not, 
there is a 90-second rule of emotions as, uh, as uh, physi physiological events as they last for only a minute and a half. Let's talk about those 90 seconds. Mm. Yeah, so I mentioned this earlier, and, and that is the reality that, like I said earlier, most of us don't allow our feelings to just live in our body. We mm. bring them up to our mind. We create stories around them. Some of us create our ego stories that we then live a lifetime reacting to. Um, a lot of us into adulthood aren't emotionally mature, don't know how to navigate our emotions, don't know how to return our, again, nervous system back to that baseline. And I'll be the first to admit, living life so dissociated, so out of body left me, once I finally landed my spaceship, at a loss for mm. how to navigate my emotions, for even, even how to label what certain feelings were, let alone find out, figure out how to communicate them, ask for support around them, maybe even make myself feel better. Mm. Um, a whole new world that I'm still, you know, working toward. Um, though into adulthood, what our task is, is to have feelings, right. all of them. So many of us, mm -hmm. right, have this idea that we shouldn't have feelings. Life is met with feelings. They actually mm -hmm. contain information. A lot of times they can give us messages, such as like I described earlier, if we're consistently feeling angry, might be something to explore. Are there unmet needs? Am I not taking care of myself? Right there, I could use that anger as a marker for something mm -hmm. that I could do differently or to change to better serve myself. Mm -hmm. This applies to all emotions. So we wanna have emotions and we wanna learn how to have them safely, mm. not reactively all over the place where we're causing harm to ourselves or others, mm. um, how to have the emotion, right? And then safely come back into a baseline. Yeah. And then even more complicated still, how to hold space, give other people the opportunity to have their emotions even in particularly when they don't map onto our emotions. This is something I very much struggle with. Same. Having a family unit that revolved around the same emotional experiences, on some level that translated to connection for mm. me. So I find myself now when I'm having an emotion, I look to my loved ones wanting them to have the same emotion. And half the time they don't. Mm. I might be stressed and they're not. I might be upset, sad, and they're not. And when they don't reflect that back to me, I struggle to feel close. Um, yeah. Same goes on the other side of things. Holding space for my partner who's having a reaction and not joining her in it because that's how I think that I'm helping. I actually could go as far to suggest that it's more helpful to hold space. You stay in a very calmer space for your partner when they're in emotion. And that is quite hard for us. A lot of us go into fixing mode because of how yeah. someone else's feeling makes yeah. us feel, ultimately all tying down to how do we navigate our own emotions? Mm. Most of us need to learn in adulthood. Yeah. Yeah. What's fascinating about the fixing, Ryan? Yeah, I get caught up in <laughs> explaining to Mariah why she shouldn't feel yeah. the way, <laughs> the, you should not feel the way you feel. <laughs> the narrative that you're telling yourself is wrong. I mean, and, th and there is some truth to that, the narratives we tell ourselves. But, you know, narrative or no narrative, emotions arise. And, yeah, the the more we can learn to hold space for those with ourselves and, like you said, especially for others, the easier we're going to be able to get through that. I, it, anger keeps coming up. And uh, the, the, the emotion of anger keeps getting brought up here. And, like you said, anger is a symptom of something much deeper. Anger is never just anger. It's mm -hmm. always, it arises from being misunderstood, from being disrespected, from an expectation not being met. Like there's always mm -hmm. a deeper thing. And I guess that probably is the same for every other emotion too, right? When, whether it's sadness or whatever it is, it's just, that's the surface. And it's, there's something much deeper that it could lead to. If you give it time, you might be able to get to that, that depth rather than, um, yeah, just letting those emotions control your life. I'm very, I'm a fixer and I'm a very emotional person. Mm -hmm. So um, I get re really reactive sometimes, but learning how to, well, Sam Harris would say to start again, mm -hmm. uh, that really helps me kind of hold space for a lot of those emotions that come up. Yeah, yeah, the, the I don't know about, you know, I'm sure all the emotions are tied to some narrative in some way. They, they almost have to be, right? Maybe there's an exception in there with peace or joy or something that is simply uncovered or is the natural state. Mm. But beyond that, there is, you know, there's a lot of turmoil. And I think when we realize that all of this turmoil is sort of internal conflict, all of it is, we, we love to assign it an external cause, right? 
But if there was an external cause, then that cause would make everyone similarly fearful or angry or grieving or whatever. But you can put two people in the same exact scenario and one person gets pissed off. Ryan has this great story about, you know, the, um, the worst Christmas ever. Oh, yeah. And uh, it's the the perfect example of um, two kids who had a totally, utterly different reaction to the same sort of Christmas gift. You want to give a highlight on that? Sure, yeah. I mean, the cliff notes are, um, I had uh, an ex-partner, and it was her sister and her brother-in-law. They got their kids a trip to Disneyland, and they did this scavenger hunt leading up to the trip to Disneyland. And when they finally got there, like the daughter... Her, her niece was ecstatic. Oh, my God, we're going to Disneyland. And then the, her nephew, though, was really upset because uh, he thought, which just blows my mind that, I mean, he's five, so, I mean, it doesn't blow my mind too much, but he thought that the scavenger hunt was leading towards this Optimus Prime figurine that he's been asking for and it's funny because that he thought that that was him and his sister's gift (laughs) i was like look sister we got optimus prime where if it actually was optimus prime then the the, yeah it would yeah right exactly if it was optimus prime instead of of disney world then he would have been really happy and she would have been really upset probably yeah And, and realizing like those externalities didn't cause the joy didn't cause the anger that was accessible the entire time. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's the story we tell ourselves that lead to that, right? Mm-hmm. I love that wording, that's accessible the entire time. Mm-hmm. We have yeah. uh, one more excerpt I wanted to get to here from the book, and then we'll get into some surprise questions that Podcast Sean put together for us. Three steps to create a new boundary. This is page 199. Uh, do the work, create a new boundary. Step one, define the boundary. And I won't read the whole thing because you can read this on your own as you go through the book. Uh, We talk about physical boundaries, mental boundaries, and resource boundaries, mental slash emotional boundaries, and then resource boundaries. Can we talk a bit about boundaries? Yeah, boundaries are are a very elusive thing, I think, for so many of us who Mm. might not have heard um, of the concept. I know I didn't. Um, I also know how integral they are for a healing journey. Um, What boundaries really are are limits of separation, Um, again, between our physical, emotional, or spiritual selves and Mm. that of another. Um, Many of us evolve into adulthood as either typically I've seen more of having very loose boundaries, um, lack of those limits, Mm -hmm. Um, less frequently, though there are still a whole handful of us that have such rigid boundaries, um, so much space where feels like person is an island unable to connect with another human Um, so again boundary work is very individual as most healing is really identifying the areas where you lack limits um, where you might not know where your needs begin or end Mm. to even be able to to meet them to serve your own needs so defining those looking how you you know experience particularly relationships that's often where we're talking about boundaries, um, though boundaries can apply within the self too. what are my boundaries that I have around self-care? Where are my limits? How much sleep do I need that I know if I don't get that? Right. I'm not taking care of my body in right. the way that I need how. So there's personal limits, though. A lot of times when we think of boundaries, we think of relationship. So exploring how do you feel in your relationships? Do you mm-hmm. feel, you know, expansive when you think about a person or a relationship or when you hang out with them? Or do you begin to feel constricted and, and not safe, perhaps? And, of course, if you're answering the latter, um, chances are you might need a new boundary, a new limit. You might not be showing up in full service of your own needs mm-hmm. in this relationship. So let's say uh, I was your patient and you're explaining this to me and I say, you know, I get it. I need to set boundaries, but I'm really scared to set boundaries with a loved one or with my a partner or a friend uh, uh, because I'm scared of what they might think. Like, what, what would you what would you say to that? I would first talk, talk about how normal that is. I mean, for most of mm-hmm. our relationships, we have expectations that have been laid down and met over years of time. If we're talking about our caregivers, these are for a lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times we fear change because of a deep-rooted fear around they won't love me anymore or they'll leave me or this relationship will change significantly. Mm-hmm. Chances are that's probably where we began to modify ourselves around mm-hmm. that belief, around this idea that I have to show up a certain way to maintain my connections with my earliest caregivers usually. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, a lot of this is unconscious outside of our awareness, but all of those moments where we just begin to amend or wear 
a mask or not show up in full self-expression usually is based in that deeper belief that we carry mm. into adulthood. So if we imagine putting up a new limit, not being available, it's very natural that we go right back yeah. to that fearful place, that what if they do leave? Yeah. What if that means I'm not lovable enough on my own showing up as I prefer to be? Yeah. Um, so honoring that, I think the first answer I wanna give is honoring the fear of that. It's very natural mm -hmm. to have that worry or that concern. And sometimes there might be a pushback when we violate an expectation, when yeah. we begin to put new limits in place. Well, yeah. and with the boundaries, so the three steps in here that you talk about, the first one is defining the boundary, and then s the second one, setting the boundary. And some people might be familiar with that, but the third one is maintaining the boundary, <laughs> which we often don't even think about. And that boundary crumbles or, you know, it's, I, I think about if uh, a wall in our house, that's a, a boundary, right? Or a front door. But if that front door comes off its hinges, I have to do something to you know, either replace it. I, I need to maintain that boundary. Otherwise, anyone can now get in. Yeah. So let's talk about maintaining boundaries. The most critical time to maintain a boundary is when that kickback occurs, right? When we get possibly the reaction that we feared or when we don't get any reaction. So we're unsure of what's going on for the other person. Mm -hmm. I call it the feel bads, and I come by that quite naturally as mm. someone who had no boundaries um, and who really did show up in service of other people, um, understanding over time that I was, you know, um, denying really my my own needs in that service of other people. When I began to set up boundaries, I, I did get kicked back, and it was very guilt-inducing for mm. me. Everything I imagined being a selfish person, being a bad person, not being, you know, caring about my family, all was coming up to the surface in guilt. Um, and it's that critical time once we put the boundary up and again, we get that reaction or we're unsure mm -hmm. that a lot of us go back into our patterns. That Crumble. boundary is yeah. like, it was, and therefore it was never a boundary in the first place, really. Mm. It was an imaginary boundary in a way, right? And it's difficult. And so the process is hard, which is why I suggest practicing. Mm. Practicing perhaps not in that relationship where it does feel like life or death if that person leaves. Practice on the periphery. Practice mm. with colleagues at work where it doesn't feel as, as scary. It will probably still feel scary. Yeah. And it will probably still induce the feel bads when yeah. you begin mm. to start putting up boundaries. I'm having that experience right now. Mm. Um, having to put up boundaries around my time, getting a lot of requests, mm. um, having worked on boundaries for quite some time, I still feel bad. Mm -hmm. I still struggle to let myself relax when I know that other obligations are being met by, say, now my team. Mm. Um, I have a lot of the feel bad. So that part of the journey is internal. Yeah. Um, learning how to navigate your why mm -hmm. can yeah. be really helpful because what I have learned is serving my needs, allowing my needs to factor into my relationships now, while that might be uncomfortable, because we do get the kickback, we do get the reaction, what I know comes on the other side of that is a more sustainable relationship yes. for both people. Because I know what happens when one person attempts to serve everyone else in their life, they get mad at everyone else in their life. Mm. They actually point the finger outward Mm -hmm. Right. And, and blaming this person for not, you know, tending to my need or not allowing my need to be met without really understanding the role that I was playing all along by not yes. defining my needs, by not, you know, saying this won't work for me in this moment. So while the feel bad suck, right. um, they, again, allow us to evolve our relationships because there is sometimes a point of evolution where things are shifting and changing and there's ripples and it's uncomfortable for both parties. Mm -hmm. So being compassionate to that. Though again, going through this with my family in particular, being on the other side, what we're creating now is something that will sustain into time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yes. Yeah. I think sometimes the loving thing to do too is to set boundaries. And I mean, I know that might sound counterintuitive, but yeah. when you're taking care of yourself, it allows you to take care of others. But you know, this has me thinking about like literal boundaries. Like let's say I was a farmer and I didn't have a fence up but I had like, you know, a bunch of sheep and cows and stuff. Well, what's going to happen? Mm -hmm. They're going to be gone. Yes. Uh, also, if I don't have boundaries, then people could come onto my land and ruin the land. So, I mean, there's, you know, there's physical boundaries that we can obviously see why they're important, but 
And you extend that even farther. So, like, it could be that you're farming for those people. But if they right. come on and trample your land, yeah. they're ruining the thing that you're actually producing for them. Yeah. And so the, the setting boundaries is another way to, to also talk about saying no. So you, you're really saying yes to what is within your boundaries. Mm. It, it, the same thing with uh, people asking for your time. It, it's hard. You know, we probably we would have to do 10 to 20 hours of interviews a week if we said yes to every interview. And I'm sure you're the same way. And so it's us saying no to virtually all of them. So the ones we say yes to, we're able to give our all. And also there are seasons for that as well. You've got a book that just came out. And so you're going to say yes to more. And so you've, you've temporarily adjusted your boundary as a result. And so it's not that these boundaries are fixed per se. It's just they're fixed for a period of time, but they are ever expanding. It's just like you you grew up in a particular house, but it's unlikely if you're listening to this, you still live in the same four walls. Your boundaries have literally changed throughout your life. Figuratively, they can change as well. Choice, I think, is is what I want to kind of offer here. You may choose to amend your boundaries at any time. You may choose to negotiate. I may choose to overstep a limit to show up in service of someone else or an obligation Mm -hmm. that I want to. Choice. Not just doing that because I fear what will happen if I don't or I fear not being seen in this way or I fear losing the love of these people. We may choose to modify our boundaries and often successful relationships require that conscious choice, that conscious saying, okay, I'm going to shift a little bit, though we're doing so consciously with full awareness of the choice we're making and also then the repercussions of that choice, whatever that might be. Mm. Mm. We do have some surprise questions here. Let's start with Meredith's question. How do I break my habit of rumination? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you've got the seven-step answer, I'm ready. If um, you take enough benzos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I mean, uh, yeah, I think rumination ends when, we're, when we end um, to, to some extent. I, I, I struggle with a question like this because... Um, it's almost uh, you have to ruminate in order to f- even uh, search for an answer for it. It's mm-hmm. like this uh, self-fulfilling prophecy of like I'm going to keep keep ruminating. But when we talk about ruminate, we're actually talking about the thoughts we wish we didn't have. We're never talking about the thoughts we wanted to have, right? Right. right. Mm. And so I think the the way out of this is developing our attentional muscle, um, because what happens when we ruminate or what it feels like happens is our thoughts just suck our attention away mm. and we're spiraling down the toilet of our thoughts until we're you know stuck in the cesspool of whatever that might be yeah um so learning that we have choice yeah. that our thought may start right my subconscious may offer the first you know offering of my rumination for me i'm not considered there goes that one ether right i'm the one who focused my attention and went down that spiral yeah. so creating the space of choice around where we put our attention where we expend it mm-hmm. and it is a muscle so many of us yeah. aren't practiced. The first time the thought comes, oh, it sucked my attention away, and I don't know where I am anymore. Yeah. So identifying, of course, the, er, the beginnings of my rumination can help before it catches that steam, mm-hmm. as I know they do. <laughs> and then learning how to refocus our attention, learning how to flex that muscle, how to maybe put it onto our breath or onto the present moment, out of our mind, into our body. Yeah, yeah. there are so many different ways to kind of catch that and choose to think differently you mentioned breath. So that's one surefire way to like change your state and to help, uh, help you maybe gain control of your thoughts or at least be able to recognize them. Um, another one is, you know, choosing a different perspective or a different lens to look at the problem through. So that's what therapy has done for me. It's really given me a lens to look at my problems in a way that helps me to ruminate less on them or maybe to uh, have less negative rumination on those thoughts. So like with my father, I used to blame, you know, the reason why him and I have a bad relationship, it's because of this religion that he's in. And, you know, if I could just show him that, you know, why this religion is so bad. And I would like have this narrative of having to talk my dad out of being in this religious organization, which intellectually, like I know that that's never going to happen. Mm-hmm. But through therapy, I got to a spot where, you know, my therapist, cause I was explaining this to him, and he was like, well, he's like, Ryan, your dad's a bad dad. Like, is it really the religion that makes him, like, are there other people in the religion that have similar situations, but they get along with their kids okay? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I guess so. So, you know, just having that lens. So now when I have that thought of, oh, man, it's that religion, really, I can take a step back and be like, no, remember, like, your dad is just not a great father. And that's okay. That's not your fault. And that's how I start to talk to myself. Now, another thing I do, too, I know this is so silly, but, like, I was doing it on the uh on the way to the office this morning 
I was uh, just stressing out a little bit about a couple things. And instead of going down that rabbit hole of perpetuating all of that anxiety, I literally took a step back and I'm like, buddy, you're doing okay. <laughs> it's going to be all right. Take a couple deep breaths. And like just being able to like say those words to myself and take a couple deep breaths, it totally helped me to uh, just process that anxiety a little bit differently. I'd like to offer a, a third perspective on this. The, we use the term rumination or ruminate pejoratively, right? Because we're always, rum, whenever we're ruminating, it's the bad <laughs> thoughts. Mm. Whenever we're joyous, it's thoughtful or it is mm. you know, meditative or whatever it is. Like we, we use a different word to describe it, those thoughts. Uh, if I were to step back, and I think the mystics would say the thoughts are actually the problem, right? The, the fact that you want good thoughts is what always tethers you to the bad thoughts in a way. Hmm. It's seeking that outcome of chasing the good thoughts will always lead to rumination. What, what we actually want isn't the good thoughts or the bad thoughts. I think the times when we feel most alive is when we're in the state of no mind mm -hmm. where we even call it a flow state when things are just firing on all cylinders now one might argue you can't sustain a flow state in perpetuity i don't know whether that whether or not that's true or maybe it takes a particular mystic in order to 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 do that or you know someone who is uh, a, a master or meditator sort of thing but um i, I think instead of seeking out the good which tethers us, tethers us to the bad maybe the answer is understanding that there is no difference ultimately yes there are bad thoughts and good thoughts but it's like saying there's like good trash and bad trash that it's all a trash heap ultimately yeah yeah i mean i think what the way i'm processing what you're saying is when you're having negative feelings when you're having negative or you're having thoughts that's leading to negative feelings mm -hmm. to take a step back and maybe um find a state of meditation where you are having less thoughts uh, yeah, but the uh, but the, but the physical the physical good meditativeness meditativeness yeah, yeah yeah but the physical feeling of, like with those anxiety attacks um i mean there are literally there's a physiology that's involved that you have mm -hmm. to hold space for, you have to find ways to manage it. You have to find ways to help it pass through you. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe, yeah, maybe the meditativeness is, is, uh, another tool to use to kind of hold space for those negative emotions. So yeah. for me, what I found, because I, I had ruminated a lot and in those moments, because it does map onto a physiology, which for me, I'll use the word agitation because mm. that's what it feels like sitting when I'm agitated is a nightmare. So what I found is helpful for my reboot and actually how I started to practice consciousness when I began because sitting entirely was when I began to ruminate, when my mind began to race. Doing a walking meditation can be really helpful or a movement-based one because for me that helps me expend that agitation. So that's when I might go walk around the block or walk to get coffee, mm -hmm. being careful, however, where my attention is. Yeah. Because if on my walk to get coffee, I'm rehashing, right, the issue at hand, then yeah. I'm ruminating on my walk. Right. If I'm walking, however, and maybe just feeling, okay, what is it, does my body feel like now? Mm. It's escalated. Okay, I'm walking. Am I getting the energy out? Focusing again on the sensations mm. might give that reboot. Because I know in those moments when we say meditate or do breath work, for a lot of us, it's like, hell no, I'm not stopping. Yeah. Um, when I have that energy agitation that can often come along with rumination. So yeah. perhaps um, for those of us that might feel like this is helpful, do something movement-based and use that as your focus for your attention as opposed to your moving thoughts mm, could be yeah, a helpful yeah, suggestion. Yeah. We got a question here from Brenda. Brenda writes in, <laughs> how do I, um, I, I'm, I'm laughing because I have no answer to this question. <laughs> <laughs> how do I alleviate anxiety after a concussion? You know what's fascinating about this question, Nicole, is if you just take the first part of the question, I think it's still applicable to everyone. How do I alleviate anxiety? And then it, insert calls of anxiety there. It could mm. be a concussion. Um, we actually have a, a really good friend, a business partner of ours. We own a coffee shop down in Florida at who he, he just had a terrible concussion. He had a bike ride uh, this past week mm. and you know, fell off the bike and got a concussion and ended up in the hospital. And I know that, that 
resulted in, in obviously some anxiety, but then also like the, the, the trauma from that leads to other sort of uh, things stimming up. And so, yes, any sort of trauma can lead to anxiety, right? So I don't know if you would parse it out and say a concussion and uh, anxiety results from a concussion is necessarily different from anxiety in general. Yeah. I mean, outside of, of course, if there's a concussion, there's a brain injury. So mm -hmm. speaking of when I fainted that first time that I described in the book, um, I'm quite sure I was concussed as well. I had mm -hmm. symptoms for several months afterward. Um, right. Wasn't so much anxiety, more headaches, inability to focus um, visual attention. Um, for me, though, some of it can map onto anxiety. So understanding that there is something going on in the brain leading to choices to care for the brain. Um, same idea though, yeah, Joshua, what's the driving cause? There's mm -hmm. a dysregulation in my body in this context, in the, you know, the moment of concussion. Mm -hmm. um, so self-care, you know, are there things I can do to manage my body to make sure it's getting rest, proper nutrients? Definitely if it's anxiety-based, wanna do some breath work to help reestablish, right, my nervous system response and help my body to heal. Mm -hmm. um, in those moments, we wanna support our body in healing, whether it's a concussion or whatever medical thing, might be causing the anxiety, we want to holistically help our body toward healing. And we now know that there are things that we can do each day. Again, caring for our body, making sure it's getting fed mm -hmm. well, slept well. Mm -hmm. um, and again, if it's anxiety-based, making sure that we're doing some of that somatic work, breath work, meditation, something to help calm the nervous system. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's amazing what a good diet and good sleep, yeah. how far that can take you with, with health. Yeah, and especially you know, feeding the brain, eat, eating foods, or you know, whether it's DHEA or, or omega-3s. Um, or eating other animals' brains for the brain. <laughs> I, I do do that, yes, <laughs> but I, I'm not recommending that to anyone necessarily. It's funny, I have um, my brain supplements on my fridge right now. Do I'm doing organ therapy as we speak. Yeah, <laughs> I have not... Yeah, I haven't taken any of those pills. I've eaten. Like but it, by the way, if you if you're a vegan, there are ways to to get DHEA and and omega threes mm. as well. Um, I, you know, there, there's controversy as to whether or not they're as absorbable or, or whatever. Um, I have no opinions on that. I don't I don't understand the science. Pretend to understand it. I do know what works for my own body, and yeah. I think going back to what Nicole is saying is, you know, whether it is you know, supplementing with some of those things, uh, different organ supplements, or finding a vegan alternative. I think I think both of those, you know, whatever is is in line with uh, with your personal belief system. Yeah, we have a question here from Nora. I strongly believe in the mind body connection and how the mind can heal or hurt the body. How do you work with a parent slash your spouse who doesn't believe in a holistic approach in the healing of your child? This one's difficult because what you're really saying here, the, the, the fundament of the question is, hey, my partner and I don't agree on how we should raise our kid. Mm -hmm. And as soon as that pops up, I say, well, first off, there are no shoulds, right? Especially in this, as long as you're not harming someone else, that's the caveat always on, on the there are no shoulds thing. It, as long as you're not harming the kid, like, well, you know, my husband thinks we should beat her seven times a day. Oh, okay. Well, that's a different story, right? Mm -hmm. There are some shoulds there uh, with respect to harming someone. But if we're talking about, hey, look, I believe one thing, my spouse believes the other thing, and now um, we, we're at sort of a crossroads. Mm. And man, that is difficult with, with raising a child. And I don't know what you would say to someone like this. Really, really difficult and it's very complicated, you know, not understanding what the living situation is. A lot of times the child is being shuttled between two homes. Yeah. So it really is they are in a separate environment and being raised very differently. Even under the same house, mm. um, it can cause conflict. Um, again, back to the, I think, really difficult uh, reality for us humans that we can't control another person, even with whom we're co-parenting a child. Yeah. Um, so to that, there's complications. Um, again, it is hard to find that middle that works for both parents. Um, I think that oftentimes, you know, honoring what works if you are the sole parent in any given situation in the household, modeling change, doing things, right, with your child in whatever circumstance you can carve out to do it, the way that resonates for you, um, mm. oftentimes can be so much more impactful for the others watching. Because mm. um, as they start to see shifts and changes, as you begin to heal as a parent, this is the also other way I wanna answer this question, um, because a lot of times I get asked, how do I parent my kid differently? Mm. My response is always some version of the same. 
work on the self, right? Yeah. Watch how you're showing up every day because yeah. what's impacting your child more than you know is what they're seeing, is oh what you're God. modeling yes. for yeah. them. So this might answer the question in so much as model a holistic way of living for your child. You mm -hmm. start doing it. And again, when they're under your care, perhaps, mm -hmm. then you adapt and you and your child live holistically. Mm -hmm. Over time, shifts and changes will occur. Mm -hmm. And that's gonna be a much more impactful um, aspect to create change in the other parent. Of mm -hmm. course, this is, I'm really simplifying, obviously a very complicated situation where it's oftentimes not as easy um, to figure out where those middle grounds are, what changes we can make when we're very well intentionally wanting to show up for our child differently. Of course, when there's another parent involved. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Here, here's something that sucks. That, yeah, I have this in our own life. Yeah, um, Ella's biological father, uh, doesn't make the best health decisions for her. And um, so when she's with him, um, we we have to accept the fact. And, and accepting is really hard, especially when it comes to someone you love and, and are responsible for mm -hmm. to a great extent. But also realizing that, um, yeah, I, I think there are some shoulds here that he should do differently because I think it's harmful because she has certain food sensitivities and mm -hmm. she doesn't get enough sleep when she's with him because of his work schedule and stuff. And so there are some things that are that I, I think are harming her. And um, I think that's unfortunate. The question is, like, to what extent is it intentional harm? No, of course not. I, I don't think he's, you know, he's he's harming her intentionally. But I think he also doesn't have the same understanding that yes. Bex and I, I do mm -hmm. about you know, her health and what is health and what is best for her. Um, and, and so there has been some, some letting go, some, some willingness to, to drop it because otherwise I can, I can cling to it and I can wish all day that he would be behave differently. But the question now is, okay, well, what's the cost I'm willing to go through? Do, do we... Do we separate households and you know, go through a whole court battle? And by the way, the court isn't going to see, well, yeah, yeah, he's feeding her like a standard American diet. Isn't that what everyone feeds your kids? Yeah. I think it's detrimental to her. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, um, I, I don't have full control over that. And yeah. so accepting what is in my control, the weeks that I do have her or that we have her, and there are times where it is outside of my control. And while it sucks, I... I I can cling to it all I want. That's not going to change a damn thing. It sounds a little bit like the serenity prayer. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. How does that go? Uh, grant yes. Grant the change the things I, I can't accept the things I can't cannot change. Yeah. Change the things I can. Yeah. 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 We got a question here from Summer. How do you accept and make peace with the past? Mm. These are two two different things here. We've talked about acceptance today. So let's talk about peace for, for a bit. My, my understanding of peace is you know, we, we use these same words interchangeably. And I, so if you mean, when you say peace, you mean happiness. If you mean contentment, if you mean joy, if you mean equanimity, if you mean tranquility, these are all words that I would use. And I think they have distinct definitions. But uh, let's say that peace is happiness at rest and happiness is peace and motion is maybe another way to, to look at those things. Uh, if we, we look at it that way, when we're talking about peace, peace is sort of the, the default state. Mm. It, is, it is the natural state that can only be interrupted. Now, usually it's interrupted by how we interpret things, and we've evolved to be interrupted because, uh, what was it, 20,000 years ago, someone who is in the savanna hears a rustling in the bushes, it's either a rabbit or a tiger, right? Mm. And the person who thinks it's a tiger 10 out of 10 times, even though it's a rabbit nine out of 10 times, he will be safe every single time. Mm. The person who thinks it's a rabbit 10 out of 10 times will be eaten the 10th time. Mm. And, and so we've evolved to have our peace disrupted like this. Unfortunately, we now apply that to everything. Oh my God, GameStop stock went down 17% this week. Mm. It's disrupted my peace. Well, that's a narrative I've told myself. It wasn't even real in the first place. I've just given it meaning. There are, there's real things in the real world, rabbits and tigers, but everything else is something that we've sort of invented and we've allowed to interrupt our peace. So peace can't be found. It cannot be procured. It cannot be attained. It can merely be uncovered. Yeah. I don't know if you disagree with any of that. 
but yeah I love that and I, I think we can uncover peace around our past when we allow it not to be our point of reaction mm. anymore not to be the lens through which the next thing I know I have that feeling and I do the thing I always do when I have that feeling right and um, we truly make peace when our past when our past is because it was there yeah um, I might even right feel that lens begin to come over here from me that I'm not considered narrative yet I grant myself choice. Mm -hmm. Now, as an empowered adult, understanding that at the time when many of us were wounded, were traumatized, we didn't necessarily have choice. Now to make peace with that, we grant ourselves that choice. Yeah. We could acknowledge the past, past as part of who we are, as part of our experience in the moment, but not let it reaction, not let it color. Um, so I think that is yeah. the version of the answer that we're looking for. Um, mm. The past might still come to our present, we might still have an event now that feels very similar to then and that feeling might wash over me right for the 90 seconds and that's real for me because that happened yet i get to now choose what am i going to do about it as yeah. opposed to what most of us do slip into that autopilot and become that reaction of the past yeah my past when you know whether it's the trauma i've been through or whether it was the mistakes i've made and i've had a lot of both um it really helps me to make different decision, different decisions in the present, which affects my future. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, when those past things come up, um, if you can use it as a tool to make better decisions in the present moment, that's for me, that is what has helped me really find peace with my past. Um, especially because, you know, once I started making better decisions, you know, now I can look, you know, back through the last 10 years, even though it hasn't been perfect, I feel really good about what, you know, we've done over the last 10 years. And I know that, you know, I know that if I continue to do that, I'm going to have another pretty solid, you know, the following 10 years. And I can even learn from those mistakes during those, those past years. But ultimately, you know, I am right now today, this moment, uh, I am what my past has led up to. And when I look in the mirror, I really like who I am. So, you know, all that trauma and all those mistakes I've made, it's really taken all of that to get me right here. And that has really helped me not just have peace with the past, but even uh, accept it and appreciate it. Yeah, that's how we gain wisdom. Mm. Right? We live in experience. We're able to pull back, yeah. gain, you know, the teaching in it and then apply that to a future that can be different. We get stuck though in the middle and we get incredibly disempowered because yeah. we're letting the past continue to color our reaction and we're not creating that change. So when you can harness that to now create change yeah. through learning for our past, that's when I truly believe you become wise. Yeah, my, my uncle has a funny quip about wisdom. He says, wisdom is something you obtain right after you needed it. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Yeah. I mean, I know how many moments retrospectively when I'm like, oh, yeah. I yeah. said and did all of that and really it was probably this thing over there that happened. Mm -hmm. Oops, you're right, a little too late. <laughs> yeah, we spend countless moments trying to change the past and it's a futile exercise. Yeah. And I mean, we can, the only thing that we can change is our narrative about it, right? You know, mm. you are an amalgamation, as, as Ryan just talked about, of, of your scars, whatever those scars of the past are. But you get to choose what those scars mean at this point. It is up to you. The reactivity that you mentioned a moment ago, I think that ultimately is what disrupts our peace. Almost always. Reactivity always disrupts mm. peace. You could tweet that podcast, Sean. <laughs> uh, I, I think that, that you know, the 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 reaction to whatever we have. You know, I feel like I need to do something because of a thought or a feeling or what someone said. Uh, what you said a moment ago, Ryan, about the fighting. It takes two people to to fight, mm. right? And when, when I think about that, it's like, yeah, when someone starts a fight with me, it continues because I've reacted to it. Right. Is it possible that I could, now, is it more difficult? Of course, but could I maintain a peace even if someone is in my face yelling at me? Sure, it's possible. Sure. And so it's only my reaction then mm. that, it, that disrupts the peace. Not even their external uh, uh, prodding uh, has to disrupt my peace. It doesn't have to. Yeah. It's my decision. Absolutely. We have a question here from Abby. How does one stop self-sabotaging? Mm. What are your thoughts? It's 
talk about self-sabotage a lot. So mm. great question, Abby. And I think a lot of us resonate with it. Um, again, self-sabotage, in my opinion, is a function of that subconscious, that pull to the familiar. No what matter- What does it look like when someone is self-sabotaging? How does that manifest? It often looks like I set an intention and I do the opposite or I don't keep my promises to myself. I mm. talk a lot about showing up in alignment. Um, and again, I know because of a lot of us are living from that reactive space of our habits and patterns, we don't show up as we intend. We don't keep promises to create change in our life. And we create a habit of self-betrayal, of not showing up in service. And again, that's because we very much prefer that familiar space. Yeah. So our intentions, again, come typically from the conscious part of our mind that can very beautifully gain wisdom, mm. see the aspects of the past that didn't work, and troubleshoot those for the future. Mm. Um, very beautiful intention, yet I can't actualize it because that pull to the familiar pattern around whatever it is that is occurring is so strong. So the way out, um, as many of us have to do to create these new lifestyle changes, because um, what we're looking for is the consistency, not just keeping a promise every now and again, mm -hmm. when I think of it, doing these things daily. Um, so we wanna create a new habit of keeping those small daily promises, of breaking it down, the smaller the better. Mm -hmm. In my book, I talk a lot about um, a self-healer who's really near and dear to my heart, and her name is Allie. Um, and she started an incredible journey of healing and transformation around her pretty debilitating symptoms of multiple sclerosis that are now completely in remission. Regardless, her journey started with one glass of water every morning before coffee. She made and kept a promise to herself that before she drank her coffee or did anything else, she would drink one glass of water. That was it. And here's where I say it doesn't matter what the promise is. In that moment, what Allie was gifting herself with was the opportunity to keep that promise, even as the resistance piled up, even after morning three when her mind was saying, that's so silly, one glass of water, Allie isn't gonna do anything, look at you, you're debilitated with MS, what's one glass of water gonna do? Resistance, mm -hmm. I drank the glass anyway. And what she was doing was empowering herself, yeah. breaking that habit of self-betrayal, not listening to that resistant-based thoughts, that thinking that was keeping her in those patterns that weren't serving her, and keeping that promise anyway. So anyone out there who makes million intentions and can't create the change into their future, practice making and keeping a very small promise to yourself. Yeah, I love that. It's um, beautiful. It's, it's crazy. I, I know uh, people, friends, family, who they're addicted to the drama. They're addicted to the self-sabotaging because when one self-sabotages, at least they know what the outcome is going to be. So going back to what you were saying about it, being the safer route, being the easier route. Um, I mean, we have a mutual friend who I think you had told them, I, th I think you're, I think you might be addicted to drama friend. Uh -huh. And you said it very lovingly. Yeah. Um, but it's true. Uh, you know, it's, it's these patterns, these habits we get caught in and those are the safe things to do. The small promises thing. That's, it's funny you mentioned drinking water. Cause I started doing that a few years ago where like I wake up and I have like an probably, you know, whatever the small mason jar is like I down one of those glasses of water and really like even that small thing, it really does make a huge difference. And it does give you the motivation to start making these other little promises to yourself. Well, it helps you understand that you're capable of making some sort of change. Yeah. And that gives you the momentum you need to make other changes that may not be as small. And by the way, all these small changes add up over a period of time. Mm -hmm. And I think understanding what you just said, Ryan, we do get addicted to the self-sabotage, to, mm -hmm. the, to the drama, and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah. The reason that we are self-sabotaging is because fundamentally, deep down, we want to self-sabotage. Yeah. There's something there that we, now we don't understand it. We would never articulate it that way. We, the way we would articulate it is we would say, how does one stop self-sabotaging? I think instead of stopping in terms of a prescription, the only way you stop something is when you understand it. Yeah. When you truly understand why you're self-sabotaging and why you're actually addicted to it, and why you desire that self-sabotage because it's fulfilling some sort of need yeah. in some way. A, lo a lot of the times, like the friend that I'm, I'm thinking about or even a family member that I'm thinking about, it's like this, um, this victim role that people in their life, out of love, I mean, they don't realize they're doing this personal harm, but like out of love, the people in their life will go and like seek to help them out. Oh, you're a victim again, mm -hmm. so I'm going to help you out. So then you get addicted to that compassion yes. or, or the, the attention, whatever it may be. Mm. 
yeah it's first to admit i i love to complain to my partners to my friends after a day i tell them the litany of things that were not great Uh or stressful Mm. for me about that day because again right back to everything we've talked about that was my connection that's how i felt i was bonding that's how i was sharing part of myself yet i came to realize that was my familiar home Mm. if i relive the stressful events i'm now back in my stress response i'm back in that familiar home yeah man that's i'm also a complainer so i'm gonna I'm going to try and t- take a different perspective now on I just that. I make my choice. Sometimes I still complain. Yeah. I indulge in my stressful <laughs> thoughts, so I give myself choice. And other times I pull it back and I say, okay, Nicole, yeah. you can connect a different way now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, before we wrap this up, Nicole, I want to acknowledge you. We both want to acknowledge you. And yes. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the work that you do. I'll encourage folks to follow you on Instagram for sure. We'll put a link to that in the show notes. Check out your new book. It's called How to Do the Work. We've been reading excerpts from that today and also talking about a lot of the topics there. But we only scratched the surface. So check out how to do the work. Where else should people find you? Absolutely. Just got a new website. Got it all revamped at theholisticpsychologist.com. Also, we'll be rolling out season two on my YouTube channel right. at The Holistic Psychologist as well. And new exciting news, a podcast to come. Um, in the next few weeks, we'll be launching the first episode of our Self Healer Soundboard podcast. So hearing right. a lot from me in all different avenues now. Congratulations. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. All right, y'all. Love people. Use things. We'll see you next time. Thank you so much, patrons. The Minimalists. Mm-hmm. <laughs>